From Search of Source and the Fifth End Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, celebrating the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm your host, editor of this fair podcast and EP of this fair podcast and director of the Fifth End Podcast Network, Chai Taylor. How you doing, guys? With me, I have. Don't interrupt me. With me, I have someone who's interrupted me already, rudely. Uh, we have Andrew Director of Mr. Brandon Hill. What is good, sir? Hello, Charlie. Excited to, uh, to get into it. And with us as well is radio producer. Oh, yeah, big ups. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Mickey Ellerback. What is good, sir? Yo, what up, Charlie? Let's get into it. Let us do exactly that. Um, before we begin, have uh, you guys been spinning anything? Any recommendations? Uh, I mean, you guys have been kind of on odd, at odds with the Amine album. I don't know if you want to bring that into oh, the Oh, but phone. other, I mean, other than that, like, there actually has been such good music lately, actually. Um, let me, like, what have I been spinning? Let me run Throw it. one out. Go for the, it. Uh, the Loot album. Like, Loot and Mick Jenkins, like, both dropping are sort of that, like, um, very, like, I'm trying to say it like without sounding mean about it, but like like rappers like coming off the bench and like coming off the bench hard, right? Um, the Loot album like really surprised me. You know, it's been a while since he's dropped. Uh, same with Mick Jenkins, except for that like little short EP. And even like that EP, I feel like he did more marketing, like more advertising for that EP than what he did with this new album. Uh, definitely caught me by surprise, but pleasant surprises on both both ends of that, Mick Jenkins and Loot. Especially Loot, man. Especially Loot. That album's actually really good. Fair play. Mickey, any shots? Yeah, well, I mean, like you said, I from the last week of releases, my favorite thing that dropped was the Amine Project. Um, I, I actually feel like um, project-wise, like actually full album-wise, maybe this is our difference, Brandon, is I think I like the, the first one was called 1.5, right? And now the second one's 2.5. But I think I actually like those. They're they're kind of his more fun projects rather than the kind of like ones with an arc and kind of these things going on. I think I I guess I just kind of like the and he gets a little bit more experimental, I guess, or with the sound or just like the general sonics of things rather than kind of staying in a more, I guess, hip hop lane, which it feels like for the more standard ones. Although Amina is kind of always experimental. But I think there's something about the kind of because they're kind of mixtapey. The 1.5 and the 2.5 mm. ones. I think that's maybe yeah, the best definitely. way to describe it. And I think I just like that from him more. Just it's strictly on a personal taste thing. But I've I've, uh, I've been bumping that one in the whip. I really like that. Uh, then before that, I feel like the albums that I've been really listening to are Magic Jordan. I actually think that that's maybe their best body of work they've ever put together. Um, uh, the Maxo Cream which we'll talk about more. I think that's like an album I'm still continually spinning back from kind of recent history. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joy Crooks, I think, is the other one uh, that, you know, I, I've been saying this over and over about her. It's not, you know, it's impossible to compare these two, but just really in her vocal tone, she's somewhere in the between Amy and Billy in just the way that she delivers. And I think she has this... Um, very specific sound that she just kind of sticks to throughout the project. She knows she knows what works for her and she doesn't stray and it just kind of really makes the the album feel really consistent and and have a kind of a through line that carries you through. So yeah, I've been bumping that a lot. Absolutely. Um 
I don't know what to shout out to really, really to be honest. Um, actually, I literally just listened today, I guess, uh, Mungo's Hi-Fi, which is like a like a, a Jamaican dub group from like a Glasgow, um, <laughs> coming out with this uh, project called Antidote. I listened to one of their songs. Uh, my boy put me onto one of their songs uh, from years ago, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, I came out with this one. It's just like some really thick, just some really thick dub reggae. This is uh, is sick, and the fact it comes from Scotland is just all the more fascinating. And with that said, let's top into our articles. So with this, we with this episode, we are going to be talking a little bit about Incubus and their twentieth uh, anniversary of uh, our morning view. Uh, we also have something on Livia Rodrigo and also uh, and her collect- connection to uh, classical composers. Uh, but we start with Brandon's pick, which is all about the aforementioned uh, Maxo Cream. Brandon, take it away. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So this um, interview in NPR by Christina Lee on Way to the World, Max O'Cream's World, expands amid personal tragedy. Um, I feel like whenever like a really good album comes out, um, especially one that, you know, might not have um, the reach of like a, you know, a Drake album or something like that. I always want to bring something to the podcast and read like a bunch of you know, different interviews because I want to talk about the album as well as, um, you know, give some huge props to some of the great uh, journalism being done. So in this case, um, Christina Lee's interview, and it's written in sort of like almost like a profile format, like a bit of a profile, a bit of album analysis. Um, But where it really stands out is highlighting the album as a continuation and expansion of Maxo's three album run, uh, which is really the right thing to hit on because I think that the way he remains consistent while expanding on what he does best is really the defining characteristic of Way to the World. Uh, The family trauma that Maxo has covered on his previous albums remains ever-present despite his growing success, and even as new traumas add to the weight, uh, he's now processing them from where his position is now with many of the same techniques that he has previously approached by using retrospect. So, you know, things have changed, the world has changed, Maxo's life has certainly changed, uh, but the root of his music and the root of uh, his life's impact on his music has remained very consistent. Um, And so you see him really expand on that with this project. As far as Christina's writing, my favorite thing um, that she does in this piece is, I mean, it may even be a thing consistent she's done across other pieces, but this is the first time I've noticed it. Uh, Because this is actually a writing trick that I like to use a lot. So she uh, leads the reader into something with suggestion, right? With her exposition, she suggests something, but then she doesn't give you the answer. She brings in Maxo to give you the answer with a very, uh, very direct quote. So just for example, at the top of the piece, she writes, in every sense of the world, or sorry, in every sense... Way to the World continues a tradition that Maxo has carried on from his 2018 debut, Punkin, whose title is his family-given pet name, and 2019's Brandon Banks, which Maxo named after his father, whose lively, sharp voice animates the album. I always try to honor my family in my music, Maxo says in a phone call four days before Way to the World's release. And then another example further on in the piece, she writes, Mama's Purse shows how music helps Maxo excavate family histories, to learn more about himself and how he operates the world. Shit, money don't solve shit, he says. It just makes everything a little better. So, I mean, that's just like, I love the way that you lead in, 
but then you bring a lot more power to the point that you're making by letting Maxo give you the point, right? Like, I think a lot of times when writing, like, it's it's easy to want to um, to have the most, like, powerful points yourself, um, but they really come across, like, especially with the, the structure of this piece, they really come across better when you let the subject deliver the final point, deliver the explanation. Yeah, uh, that was actually... I'm going to say kind of the same thing that you're saying, but in a different way that kind of goes into something that I too have kind of attempted to do with my um, interview style that I think Christina is kind of the master of, which is you're talking about uh, just leading with the voice of the, the interview subject rather than with your own. And I think it's, to me, I think about it in the context where I think, and I think the mama's purse section is the perfect example of leading with the music which is a thing that i tend to even in my interviews um i feel like i get the most personable or, or interesting kind of life details if that's the segue if it's not like hey i'm coming in to interview you to get this raw shit about your life because like i'm a journalist and that's what i do rather than like going through the art to then transition into the stuff i feel like it's kind of you're going to get a more open and intriguing conversation and she does that kind of naturally and it, it makes her really she's very much the queen of nuance i think of getting and transitions really going one thing into another so it really felt like with that section you were talking about the kind of the money thing is it was really a a situation where she was letting the music completely drive the conversation and then letting it just slowly fold directly into an interview. So then it gets to their kind of back and forth in conversation. And then that's really what expands on the themes that she's bringing in. Um, and I think it just, it feels much more organic and completely unforced. Um, and like, you're not reaching at all. Like you're really getting, a succinct and she'll even drop these little tidbits of ideas of themes, but then never will, will rely on her own intellect to take them to new places. Exactly. Right. Like it's not even like the strength of her writing is her actual writing, yeah. but in the way that mm. she sets up the other components of the piece um, and uses her writing to just like connect them in the most like direct and flowy kind of way. It's almost yeah, like, exactly. exactly like you were saying, it's almost like, Maxo had this story already there and yeah. she didn't overwork it to put it out there. Like she just kind of put the stitches in, like kind of sewed it together. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, overall, it's an extremely just uh, well, I think, put together piece. As somebody that, that, that doesn't uh, indulge in, that hasn't indulged in Maxo Cream until reading this, um, you get a lot uh, from just what he's about. Uh, you know, in the quote you in the quote you put, Brandon, in the first, second paragraph, uh, I think that you know delivers a lot and really gives you gives the reader um, and even uh, an, even a reader that doesn't know much about Max Cream, such as myself, it really just just lends a lot to you and gives you a lot of because this ain't exactly you know long, you know you you, you said you said yourself, Brandon, it's like a half profile kind of piece. It's not even that long, right? It's not like the Adele piece from from a few weeks ago that we did a past episode. Um, it's not it's not chunky. Um, it's very succinct and to the point. Uh, but even with that said, like you guys were kind of mentioning, there's a uh, there's a 
here's the points and here's just like me just summing these two things together. Um, I feel like the personally the bit that got me most, I think, from a personal standpoint in terms of uh, Cream's story is just the uh, uh, that recording of the Panorama song Trips where the, these lyrics here more than half an hour waiting uh, on the paramedics, spend another half hour answering questions for detectives, fighting, screaming, lodges, someone help him, guess when breathing, he's so helpless, barely breathing, now he's breathless. I, that, that, you know, that really gives a lot, um, just off that alone. And there's a lot of that, <laughs> that weight, no pun intended, uh, put into this in such a, a quick amount of time in about, I don't know, probably like a five minute read, not even that. Um, so yeah, shout out to Christine on that front of just, you know, it, it kind of feels like she had half an hour to get all this information, but I highly doubt that. But it just, I don't know, just gets so so much detail and so much uh, in such a small amount of time. And uh, it's, it's rare that you can find something of this nature where it's like so to the point, but you get so much out of it, you know? Where, whereas, you know, some profiles, profile pieces need to go, you know, 10 minutes to get to the point. Uh, as I'm sure you guys have wrestled with uh, uh, many a time on your in your personal work, yeah, yeah, and it's also it's also very clear how Christina's like well aware of Maxo's previous music, like the profily aspects of it yeah, aren't, aren't like here is Maxo Cream, let me introduce you to Maxo Cream. No, it's here is Maxo Cream in the context of everything that we already know about him, right? Yeah, well, that section that you brought up, Charlie, is another great parallel to the kind of original point that we're kind of driving home here because she does a very similar tactic. And I was going to talk about that part, too, where she kind of just drops this little thing where she's like, he's expanding on what he's done before. And there's a familial kind of thing going from one project to another. And he expands upon it here. And here's a quote that drives the point home. And then kind of drops and concludes it at the end and brings it back around to the center. So again, it's that same super organic process of I'm going to just throw this little tidbit in here and then like let Maxo do the rest so it can drive home the thing that I could have said in my own way. But really, I'm, I'm just letting him really. So she's proving each thing that she's she's putting in these little thesis statements and then rounding them out totally with what mm. she's garnered. And I think that, again, that area is another example. And I thought it was really, that one was done with very expert level finesse because you could really see without her overtly saying it that Maxo's going from this thing of like um, expanding upon in new ways and in new experiences, like the continual process of familial healing, um, which is, I think, something that he gets even more specific on on this album and why it takes like more and more listens to really get through um, and and take it in. And me and Brandon were going back and forth when we were kind of first starting to listen to this album. And I kept going like, oh, no, I don't know if this has the same nuance as Brandon Banks. And then I just kind of kept going, listening in different environments. And it was like, oh, I'm catching like three lines in this song that are new here, three lines in this song. And it's really funny and, again, a very astute let Maxo drive the point home rather than yourself. Her closing paragraph, I thought, was a really, like, aha journalist moment where you're like, oh, this is amazing <laughs> because she got gets him to say that basically comparing his music um, 
to kind of a Pokemon Harry Potter thing. But basically what he's saying is that like, it's something you have to sit with and kind of like grow with and, and take in over a period of time. You can't like skip parts of the storyline. You have to like take in the whole thing. You can't just cut out individual things. That's how his music is. And it sounds like a really funny thing, like off the dome hit up Pokemon and Harry Potter, but then you like think about it for a second <laughs> You're like, oh, this is funny. So you're going to engage the reader, but then the reader is going to sit there like we all did when we read it, I'm sure, and think, oh, shit, that's actually that's actually pretty fucking astute and exactly how I think about <laughs> listening to Maxo's <laughs> music. Um, but again, same thing. She does kind of like three or four to five of them throughout the profile and then closes on that one again, where it's like, I don't need to say it. I'm just going to let Maxo say it by what he told me. Yeah, well, and, and, and she's done an excellent job, too, of making you if you're not familiar with the work making you want to go back and and check it out almost by the omission of describing it but not in a way where the story as it is feels incomplete right like she doesn't have to tell you everything but she leads you into like wanting to go and know the lore mickey i know you can't relate to this charlie might be able to but it's like um when you play like you play a video game and you start at the sequel and then you get on the wiki and you're like reading everything because you're trying to figure it all out. Like then that is the feeling that I get out of this piece about Maxo's music. I spent a, a, a night the other week uh, watching retrospective, watching like a, I don't know, deep dives on Metal Gear. Uh, yeah. Metal Gear Solid. There's, yeah, uh, there's plenty on while, Metal Gear, yeah. I did that on while, Metroid too. I've been playing the new Metroid. Yeah, Had yeah to get exactly. All the- while and this is kind of a tangent, but while also reading up on the Last Emperor of uh, China, which is just crazy, go read the Wikipedia on that. Just a minor point, um, you know, you you can jump into Pokemon when if you want. Um, I don't think uh, I don't think ten year old Timmy's going to be playing Pokemon Yellow anytime soon uh, on the Game Boy Color. You know what I mean? So, uh, uh, but the Harry Potter point, I think, is per- that's a perfect analogy. I think, uh, but yeah, just wanted to throw that out there. Any more points? Well, uh, on maybe the album itself, maybe uh, Max O'Cream sees more depth in Pokemon than you ever will, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> I got, okay, I, I, I would just love to see Timmy playing Pokemon Blue. All right, if it happens, <laughs> it happens. I just don't see it. <laughs> I got. I do have one point about the album come from? The, that I really like about this album in particular, and maybe I need to go back and see if, if this is also present in Maxo's other albums, but in a very like nerdy, journalistic way, Maxo sets this album up perfectly to be wrote about like the very first song gives you like a strong lead and then it gives you like the nut graph the update on like everything that's happening in his life right um you know his brother he's he's now got money he's now established and he's successful his brother recently died his grandma's sick with covid um his cousin also has recently passed away from suicide so he he like he sets up all these things that he then will continue to explore throughout the album and like one of the either like the first or second bar that he catches your attention right off is he says rather be carried by six before I'm dead by 12. And the like this is an album that's come up in, or a, a bar that's come up in his music previously and putting it right up front on the album before going into all these different things that he's about to explore right in the first song you get like, OK, this is Maxo. This is the same Maxo doing the same thing, and here's what he's about to give me, right? And then as Christina says, he just expands on it, right? The formula is not broken. He's got the technique. He's got the exploration. He's got the flow. Um, I think he does have some more varied production on this one, which I really like to see. 
Um, that was like the first thing that made it stand out to, uh, as compared to Brandon Banks. But like, you know, it's it's very much like an expansion of everything that he's doing great. And he's just bringing it to you again and he's doing it even better. to the next piece and this is mine um so this is by miss sophia alexandra hall via classic fm shower classic fm uh it's, uh it's called nothing new nothing in music is ever new says olivia rodrigo and all these classic composers would agree so i found this fascinating on, on a couple of levels so the first level is just a just a perfect cover photo of uh or yeah, featured image of uh, Olivia Rodrigo and Gustav uh, Mahler just chilling, just just chilling. Uh, you know, just just calling. Um, secondly, the fact that I'm not really into uh, well, Olivia Rodrigo clearly as much as Brandon will be um, <laughs> since he set off, off wax. So he was begging, begging to talk about Olivia Rodrigo. So I'm happy I blessed you with that. Um, but also just um, overall, uh, uh, um, an overall point on just like you know variety and the value of variety in terms of opinions on this i don't think there's any other place apart from classic fm making this point uh pertaining to olivia rodrigo and her quotes in this uh, teen vogue interview saying nothing is music is ever new um you know i i, I don't think this this would be this article here that we're referencing um it goes down the, i don't think any other article that even references this goes down the road of you know classical music like rap today has long relied on sampling the practice of using fragments and other mu- musician work musical work which is i don't know about you guys i'm not classically inclined in any fashion my level is literally just you know the the, the main names and that's it right uh, I don't know about Baroque period. I don't get it. Don't I don't know what it is, right? So I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm willingly being uh being a um a basic uh you know ting on a a basic boy on this front. But it is very fascinating, I guess, thinking about this article and uh, reading, especially reading it uh, from uh, firstly how she goes down uh, obviously the, the classical rabbit hole of uh, saying uh, saying here Handel was famous for borrowing from his own work as well as other composers due to the time constraints he often found himself under as a composer with over more than 120 cantatas am, am I saying it right? Cantatas? Can, like cantatas? And cantatas? Cantatas? Yeah okay I'll t- I'm I'll sure honestly um, there's a different British pronunciation than an American one but just can- cantatas? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I highly I've been watching it. a lot we, of we British Bake Off and there's a lot of words in there that they're pronouncing <laughs> a lot different than I would so I'm just gonna assume there's a uh, you know. Fair play. Yeah, different. Fair play, fair play. Um, yeah, so, you know, uh, 120 cantatas, trios, and duets, is it any surprise, right? Nothing, none of this I knew. Um, and she goes, and she she goes down giving a lot of just very specific examples. Uh, Mozart's num- Symphony Number no. 37, which is actually, actually, guys, uh, Michael Hayden's, uh, Joseph Hayden's younger brother, another factoid, uh, uh, Symphony Number no. 25 with the addition of a slow introduction. It just fascinates me in a lot of ways, right? And okay, honestly, this doesn't even this has even nothing to do with Olivia Rodrigo, to be honest. When I think about this, um, even though obviously she's the Kickstarter of this, and it and she and kind of, she kind of comes back to Rodrigo at the end, um, but you know this gets into copy musical copyright. She gives a little bit on that, you know, mentions Bloodlines, which is probably you know probably a you know a recent 
the most recent big case um, in um, you know popular music in, around this time. Uh, but you know, just the concept of classical music like rap today has long relied on sampling blows my mind just thinking about it. Um, and that's kind of just where I come from uh, on this particular article and why I wanted just to hail this up. Partly just because I think it's good to get a variety of uh, of, of opinion on certain things. Uh, this is obviously just a great example of that. A very, you know, out there example of that, but a great example nevertheless. But also just a connection that she briefly made, but I'm just going to strangle to death uh, the uh, the connection between classical music and rap music, that which obviously most of us uh, are pre are uh, you know uh, is pretty much our wheelhouse. So, guys, what do you think about the article? And obviously, the uh, uh, if you want to come down this rabbit hole of me, uh, the connection between classical music and rap music today. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this article first and foremost taps in 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 that sense, particularly into a thing that I feel like I kind of is like a catchphrase of my philosophy on life, which is that history repeats itself more than it ever progresses in ways you wouldn't even expect. Um, and uh, I think that this really. Where's the canon? We need the canon from the trivia. Nice try. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that I mean, that's just a real kind of fact of the game like it's just it, it it kind of is what it is it, i mean it's funny to obviously do the parallel from the classical way that they were kind of taking different things and repurposing them to what hip-hop is but it just you know it it makes total sense and then you know everybody wants to get paid so then there has to be some guidelines and then the bureaucracy takes hold of something and then the guidelines get out of hand and it just kind of goes in this cyclical thing here on out and through and like there comes to be something like blurred lines happens to where the whole music industry gets in a frenzy and it's like holy shit and olivia rodrigo goes by another life philosophy which is like (laughs) the difference between um reality and morality and it's like she's not even thinking about the morality of the situation she's just thinking the reality of getting sued so she's not thinking (laughs) of like what the actual thing is going to be um she's just like you know if i don't get ahead of this then i'm going to get sued and lose all anything that I have of value. I mean, I think it's just like what this article really points out to um, is, you know, it's like a, it's this kind of instantaneous reaction that when something gets locked in, it starts to get out of hand. And I mean, the first initial thing that was really funny is like the impetus for the copywriting stuff when it came to music was like these little scammers running around England oh in the early God. 1900s. <laughs> I was thinking I'm, like, I'm li- yo, these are really that. like the OG. <laughs> that was so funny to me. Like, I'm just like thinking of like, yeah, they're just like scamming all of this sheet music and like uh, on yeah, the black, yeah. like for, hitting people. For, yo, like, bro, come, come on, come on. For the listeners who haven't Mo- read the piece. You got this Mozart, the, bro? I got this Mozart. The, <laughs> the literal, like, origin of copyright law um started in the uk in the 1900s and literally it said like word for word in the piece it says because gangs were hand copying sheet music and selling it for half the price that that i double i had to double take that sentence i was like you're telling me that like british gangs were hustling like sheet music right like just dubbing over tapes like (laughs) It's literally like that. It's like it's like get getting. It's like copying from a rate, like just recording off a radio, grabbing the ta- get a blank tape, record it on that, and then sell it out the trunk. Like that's literally. It, exactly. And it's also like which it's is inherently like, hip hop. You know it's not it, it, exactly. That's why I mentioned. Yeah, it. That's why I mentioned yeah. That's it. like it was, that's like ludicrous talking about selling the tapes out of the back of his trunk. 
it's like too short. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly, bro. Right. It's so then, perfect. But as like as funny as like imagining that situation is too though, like it hits really hard because directly like in the thing it says many of the popular songwriters of the time were dying in poverty due to a piracy crisis created by gangs at the start of the 20th, 20th century. Right. Like Crazy. the die the dying in poverty modifier like it's crazy. Wild. Yeah. I don't know if that's exactly the parallel to modern day, <laughs> but that, that's, yeah, that was definitely really nuts. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, on a quick point, uh, it's just uh, for the copyright law uh, for music act in 1906. And uh, there was another one here saying almost 50 years later, the 1961 Rome convention, oh, this is long Rome convention for the protection of performers, producers of phonograms and broadcasting organizations was introduced. So what's that? The RCF. Okay, let me try and abbreviate that just for just for the fun of it. But continue with your point, Brent. <laughs> I, I was just gonna say, like the parallel, like where I see this, like like when it comes to the modern issue of sampling and copyright law. When I look at it, it is never an issue of artistic integrity, or it's most often not an issue of artistic integrity. It's mm. most often a problem for who's getting the profits. Oh, it's right. It's, it's the it's the labels. Who came in? I like look at DJ Drama. Well, they were fine, fine with him distributing mixtapes until it started great to point. get in their pockets. That's right? facts, but also like the the great people point. who were going after Pharrell and Robin Thicke were like the estate of Marvin Gaye. Like that that yeah. is like his family being like, "You're not about to take this from us." But it's all, and then like their argument, which this is where it gets kind of hairy and gray and weird, is like their argument. Basically, Robin Thicke and Pharrell were like, "Of of course, like of course we love that." You know, we love that song. Like we're inspired by that song. If that came into our, but it's what you're saying. It's not because of mm. artistic integrity. But they're like, well, too bad. It's too close. You took it, so now you have to pay. And it's and that's well, and that's yeah. That's the thing where like the law does not always. I mean, the law does not line up with ethics. Like those, yeah. there are two mm. entirely different things. Yeah. Uh, like the law is written because the people with the money got tired of people running their pockets. That's why the law was written. And then now you have this whole thing where like younger, especially like younger people or even, you know, just people in their mid 20s or whatever, like who don't know all the nuance, they don't have all the information. And it suddenly becomes popular to shit on what's popular. Yeah. Especially like in the case of Olivia Rodrigo, you have an 18 year old woman who drops one of the best albums of the year, like one of the highest selling albums of the year. Like it's popular to shit on her. Which is why this particular article, like the, the thing I like about it the most, is it shows how you can still do really, really good journalism in the modern, like, clickbaity kind of music journalism. Not that this article is clickbait, but it uses a very clickable name, Olivia Rodrigo, combined with a trending topic, which is her statement, nothing in music is ever new. This is something people are already talking about. People are going to click on Olivia Rodrigo's name, but then it uses that to then do real journalism, right? Like the, the, the crux of this piece isn't really, I think you even said that, isn't really Olivia Rodrigo and what no, she said. No, really, it yeah. uses that as a bridge to then be like, no, this exactly. is like the state of music. This is the history of this thing. This yep. is the cultural significance of it. So like that is why like I really like this piece because it's it's not just like a good read, but the whole pitching and, and story formation process of this piece is a very like smart um, process. I feel like you want to go into SEO so badly, but 
<laughs> don't want to like stretch it um but no that's a that's a, that's a perfect point on that olivia rodrigo uh just the fact that you know it, it's, it's not really about olivia rodrigo but it just gives a good opportunity for a bit of education um yeah. one more point i want to flag up um or one more question i want to flag up um that uh the uh, hold up uh the miss hall asks on here is um has music copyright gone too far? A pattern has been built in the music industry of handing out songwriting credits so as to protect artists from legal action where songs are too similar. So, do you agree with that? Don't agree with that? Well, there's... there's yes. No- it's, it's fine print for the labels. It's literally just for their money. Like, it, like I said, it has nothing to do with artistic integrity. Well, the only thing to answer that with is with another question, which is where is the line? It's like, and it, it's impossible to define. So naturally, like as soon as one, and like it with the same, for the same intention that Brandon's saying, when one person, you know, ups where the line is more and more, and they're like, no, but this is a thing. They win one case and it's like, okay, well then it's shifted to this whole new thing now for whatever reason, then it affects all of these other cases for copyright. And eventually just naturally because of the kind of initial thing which is funny enough which we all didn't know until doing this is like the scammers in england in the early 1900s is just going to progressively go up and up and up and up to where like the line is way beyond where it was intended to be when it started and that's how it goes and then eventually something's got to give and it's got to readjust but we'll see well and then there's also even the whole the whole thing that like sometimes inspiration is unintentional right like artists consume art almost all the time like yeah, yeah. And, and and if you took it like take it down to a uh, even literature or film, right? How many how many books and films follow the same basic like hero's journey, right? <laughs> are you are you going to have the the dude who wrote The Once and Future King like is his estate going to, you know, do they need royalties on every movie or film that follows that structure? Like some things are just they are cooked into the art form. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also want to ask Brandon, um, since you're clearly so such a fan of uh, Olivia Rodrigo, um, is uh, is this uh, listening to the album? Uh, has she uh, did she copy anything from in your in your mind or? Um, I'm not like massively hip on Taylor Swift, who is apparently like the one that she slighted. Yeah. Uh, so Swift I and Haley Williams. Nah, but she's paid yeah. up. You know, did, did not like though. That's Par- did not spark my uh, Paramore. My... Paramore is Haley Williams. Oh, well, yeah. you're not tapped. Into I don't know. Her. I didn't, I didn't, nothing, nothing yeah. sparked my like, oh, this sounds well, like Well, there's literally, this, I mean, you know? that really popular sure. Paramore. So I've just heard this about Olivia Rodrigo anyway, and I've seen like a YouTube clip or something on it. But there's like a one of her main songs, people say, has a very similar melody line to that very popular, whatever well, it's called, Paramore song. But it's okay, also like, so but does... it's, it's, this is not to make any point whatsoever. It's really like, I totally believe that either she was trying to do something off of it as much as I believe she just wrote a melody line, did a song, put it out. And then all of a sudden was like, oh, this, I guess this is really close to this. Who knows? Well, so does, um, Billie Eilish's I love you, um, is to the same melody as Hallelujah, like the church song, except that it's like her her melody and the beats melody are like a measure off or something like that so it's very much it's like the same melody but in a very like off kilter like darker kind of billy eilish way um which is her thing right like that's not like even if it's the same melody like she made it her thing you know what i mean like it's a completely different take on something and part of the artistic charm of it 
is that it's familiar, but not like that is, that's a technique. Like that's an artistic technique. That's not stealing. Yeah. Again, it's the same. It all, it all does a circular thing, which is just, where is the line? Nobody knows. That's it. And another key part of that final point is that currently who's drawing the line is drawing it determined on money entirely. Like uh, musical cherry Mandarin. That's what we're getting into. <laughs> yeah. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, Let's go. Politics, music. Let's get it. Politicking. Yeah. No. Shout shout to uh, Miss uh, Sophia Alexandra Hall for this uh, article. Great conversation, and also for the perfect imagery that just needs to be in a sketch show somewhere someday of just um, someone in the 1900s just going like, hey, "Yo, bruv, got got this fresh hat, hat, fr- fresh Mozart, bruv, fresh Mozart." Like. <laughs> 12 shillings, bro. 12 shillings. 12 shillings. Uh, one, I, can't, I can't stop like laughing at how ridiculous that is and then also <laughs> hearing the line in my head, composers dying in poverty like because of it. Like I'm, I cannot... I know, like, right? You see the wigs so... and all that. You think they're, you think they're high up, bro. <laughs> I mean, like, you think they're... Yeah, yeah it's weird, isn't it? Oh, it God. It's probably like just... I don't know, just shitting out the windows like all the other regular people in England in the 1800s. Anyway... Which I'll finish there. I want to know. I want to know too. Were like the like the middle class people in England like really worried about this? Like, there's those guys in the corner. Uh, yeah, they yeah. are they trapping Mozart? Like, <laughs> this town's going to shit. <laughs> I think I think I saw him passing around some Beethoven. Like, <laughs> oh, oh god. god. Oh gosh. All right, <laughs> Mickey. Yeah. Well, I have no. Top that. I, I mean, I just have that. It gives me zero transition to go into my piece, so I'm just gonna start fresh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. So uh, anyway, on a totally different note. My piece uh, entitled Morning View Turns 20 is a retrospective uh, anniversary piece uh, looking back at what is, uh, it seems to be Rachel Brodsky for Stereo Gum's favorite Incubus album, but also my favorite Incubus album, and I did an episode, sh- uh, <laughs> shameless self-plug, uh, for my 92 Till Radio show on this album for the year, I believe, uh, 2001. Um so yeah the it's 20 years <laughs> yeah i know Oof. <laughs> dramatic pause <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah uh we're not experts at math on uh, in search of sauce or maybe just me um but yeah so uh, what i that degrades carrying a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah so what i uh and we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording um and i mean you guys are not two guys i can nerd out about incubus with but we can nerd out about uh kind of retrospectives and what they mean. The thing that kind of really stood out to me is um, as aside from kind of the general retrospective anniversary piece that I read uh, is that this felt it very purposeful for kind of defining incubus for who Rachel Brodsky 
how Rachel Brodsky views them as a fan, which felt very in line with how I did. So I thought the points were really well made for it because Incubus exists and the piece kind of starts out like this in this very transitional, not traditional, transitional time between the kind of new metal and like the alternative strokes era. But it's all like they would get kind of grouped in with this new metal thing, which funny enough, and Brandon, we can talk about this later too, gets you know, that's been a topic of conversation because of that Woodstock 99 documentary that came out. So good. Um, so good. That, Listeners, if you haven't seen it. Yeah. And very, I and like, you know, that Woodstock 99. 100% and kind of toxic white male, white masculinity and what that means. And then Incubus, because there's elements of that and like that intensity in their music gets grouped in with that. But in reality, like what their music is actually about has nothing to do with that. And they're the kind of vibe of they're just like these bros from California who make rock music. And like they literally were on a beach house looking over Malibu making this. And it's not in that actual realm at all. And I think um, I think. Brodsky does a really good job of kind of introing that and putting that to the side and being like, no, taking this as what it is actually, which is not really involved with this kind of thing at all. Um, and she also goes on to dissect the balance that the album provides, makes a wildly astute comparison to the sound being like Incubus having their Don Draper in the finale of Mad Men moment, which I thought was really cool. Another bit of analysis I found really compelling was a breakdown of Brandon Boyd, uh, the lead singer's lyricism, especially on the album, which never gets enough credit as it all sounds kind of sparse and metaphorical. But she says, Boyd is just so sincere and somehow also self-aware. He's much smarter than the average shirtless beach bro, and he's interested in everything, but somehow isn't condescending. That's a tricky needle to thread. So that's still going in um, kind of going further into that kind of riding this middle line, which in reality and what this album does and what this band does is a thing that is very difficult to do sonically because they're in between two lanes and without falling into the kind of traps of the things that new metal was going into. Um, and one of the hardest things to do in music is to get people to think you are not a stereotype of what their impression of you is, but at the same time to draw fans in, give them a reference reference point to enter from simultaneously, which funny enough to me is actually kind of in a weird way. I didn't think I was going to be able to connect it to, and I'm literally thinking of this right now, similar to the kind of uh, influence versus copying of the Olivia Rodrigo thing, that there's something tactful as an artist, even if you're doing something individual of giving the listener a reference point to hook into, to tap into your sound. And like, that's going to be naturally influenced by other people and taking different things. And it's like, again, where is the line? Um, but yeah, so the, just to close out real quick, um, which I think is, is this one line that I thought, uh, kind of encapsulate encapsulate it and is literally just one of my favorite lines I've read in a piece this year I think um, encapsulates the full point of what Brodsky is kind of driving home with this piece she says for all of the overly aggro testosterone bomb acts who would encourage young cishet white guys to guzzle cheap beer and lean into rape culture you had a band like Incubus they could headbang, write a sticky melody, genre blend with pre precision, lyrically emote and imbue each song with a little cereal box philosophy um and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's giving, giving credit where it really needs to be due and kind of separating them, um, as a band from this, this stigma that is very fair or critique that is very fair for the music of the time. Um, that even if though they have a similar sound, what they were actually accomplishing sonically and musically and lyrically was, was, uh, a definitely a hair different. 
and uh, maybe interestingly more progressive and leading into uh, another era for sure in their own way um, and taking a bunch of different influences that, that, that is a lot more interesting and should be dissected. So uh, yeah, um, just kind of, we'll start out with just a generally, what did, what did you guys think maybe about that element of it or just about the piece in general? Yeah, before, I mean, before, obviously, we're just going to kind of dive into the idea of retrospectives. But before we get to that, I want to give uh, Rachel her chops writing wise. Um, and one of the reasons I feel like this piece stood out to Mickey probably um, is the way that she writes about the production, like the actual assembling of the album. Uh, and I want to read this one specific paragraph that I think just like shows her ability to do that in spades. Uh, so she writes, despite its tranquilizer dart of a closer, Morning View is not all crystals and incense. Lead single, Wish You Were Here, still a total bop, imagines a universal happy place, the beach, a cool breeze, and yearns to share it with a loved one. Tied together with, admittedly dated, record scratches, Wish You Were Here is one of my favorite examples of crisp, layered production. Just listen to the way guitarist Mike, I'm going to butcher this, Mike Einziger's Einzinger's vocals harmonize against Boyd's. Dig that one guitar strum being pulled into focus for the chorus, which is otherwise more or less a wall of distortion. Right. Like taking like one little trick in the production and pulling that out and using it to explain the philosophy or or the concept of the piece is very like Mickey Hellerback. Right. Like, but 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 it's also, you know, and it's it's great on a retrospective, too, because it's looking at the pieces of of what they were at the time and then also analyzing them from the perspective that we've gained now. Right. And that, even by that, that with that specificity, it helps to accomplish the other through line that I'm talking about it with the specificity. Another just kind of simple thing about Mike Einzinger. That's one of, uh, uh, Thundercat. I interviewed Thundercat semi recently and one of his favorite musicians. And we were kind of talking about incubus too, but him, him as a musician is, is something, um, that definitely needs to be mentioned and highlighted because I feel like also Brandon Boyd gets a lot of the shine for incubus. So, um, a big part of the reason that, that their music actually does live on for this, you know, section of people who didn't identify with the new metal kind of stuff of that era necessarily, but do really rock with incubus. I, I guess me and Rachel Brodsky, um, is, has a lot to do with his production. Yeah, I think, um, it's definitely worthy. I think, uh, uh, of just nailing down I feel and this is this is I, I think this is something I like doing when it comes to retrospectives um especially when I'm on DITD is having that uh having that zoomed out scope of where you know where, what what the platform was at this point and uh you know Rachel you, you guys obviously mentioned Rachel uh, talking about uh you know the quote and the rest of the Ozfest lineup so like you know corn disturbed in biscuit etc <laughs> and obviously mentioned Woodstock 99 which obviously has been uh you know kind of uh, thrown out from the documentary that you guys mentioned and also from the Travis Scott uh, uh thing uh, uh concert that went on obviously a couple of days ago um it's obviously been brought back in the conversation so obviously overall uh I I like the I, I, I'm as someone that's not into Incubus at all and has like just apart from what I've read here and like a couple of songs here and there it's kind of just like a blank slate it is fascinating trying to glean um what the 
what the landscape was at that point. Obviously, we're all we were all aware of like the the new metal going on that around that time. You know, rock was in I think in like uh, I don't want to say identity crisis, um, but like I don't know, it was it was changing in in some way. Uh, for, for better or worse, you guys can you know anyone can argue that uh, to whatever they want, um, but it was definitely changing. And obviously, Incubus was obviously at the in in what I'm gleaning from this was kind of just at the a front where, you know, she mentions critics. Uh, she mentions early that critics. Um, yeah, it, it literally the first first line with two decades of hindsight. It's kind of funny to notice how at war with them with themselves, music critics seemed regarding Incubus. And I love that. I love that element of it, um, especially when it comes to retrospectives. For me personally, I love how. Uh, writers especially in how Rachel done it as Rachel has done it here just from just from jump um laying out that landscape of music critics were did not know what to do with this <laughs> or you know they hated this yeah. or they really loved this when they probably shouldn't have yes you know I love I love that element of it because you know we really you know regardless of what people say critics have um some uh overall as a as a as a in in the in the in the machine of uh, music, you know, they have a place, um, and also in you know other forms of art, they have a place, and and their opinion matters uh, as a overall as an overall collective. Maybe not you know one on one. Some critics are you know more quote unquote important than others, uh, or more popular than others. But it's clear that critics in this case saw in my mind morning view as like oh this is just like this part of this thing that's going on and we're either a fan of that or not a fan of that yes where instead they probably should have you know tried to have a make a make it a concerted attempt at least to try and separate it but sometimes you just it's really impossible to do that um you know uh, there's a lot i think i think of I think of like the past 10 years or so um, of how I think if we go back, not right now, but if we, if we went back to think about, um, you know, certain trap albums in the past decade and how they were and how they were uh, talked about, whether it be negatively or positively, um, I feel like we'd have a much different uh, context uh, to that. And obviously 20 years is a, definitely a worthy amount of time uh to to get to get the to get to that point uh but yeah i I, that's my that's my favorite part of retrospective is just like that landscape layering i just love yeah yeah well that that's a huge purposeful element to this is like really you know people didn't what i spent when i from her perspective like when i go back and read what was said at the time people and now think about how i think about that album now it's they didn't know how to place it. And I bet they would now if those same kind of critics and what they ended up liking potentially and kind of what that is. And it gives a real purpose to, to the, the reason for reanalyzing it as a new thing. And that, I mean, that's what you're talking about also definitely makes me think about the like re re scoring of pitchfork scores and stuff like that. too. (laughs) Oh, that's a whole other bag. (laughs) Oh, Oh, um and what oh, ha- perfect, what yeah. what the real kind of um yeah i just i wonder i wondered about that a lot because it is like a you know it's kind of the inevitable of being a critic of anything and i was just watching and you'll like this too charlie i was watching the uh the 
pardon the interruption 20 year thing. And then Tony Reale was like uh-huh. roasting uh-huh. the, I think you saw it. We may have talked about it. He was roasting them for their like worst takes were like, Tony Kornheiser yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. Uh, Darko yeah. should have been drafted Darko ahead of LeBron. You know, Next up. <laughs> but it's just like, it's one of the inevitable things of being, uh, you know, journalist, critic, journalist, critical journalist of any uh, senses. You're, you're going to have some takes that need time before they're given. But the reality of uh-huh. the job is to give them. Uh, before they're baked quite enough and it's like uh-huh. <laughs> you know every every critic wishes they had the opportunity to recant <laughs> it's just how the game goes and it's yeah so that's i mean i think you know sometimes i feel like a lot of you know retrospectives don't you know are are not used enough maybe with that purpose and that's part of um i think you made me even identify even more about why i like this retrospective so much which was because it was like let's set a new standard for how we talk about incubus because this was like grouped in this ideology that is is really not representative of what the music actually is like Mm -hmm. that's almost why it's like interesting to pair this article with the olivia rodrigo article because in that one you know we were talking about how um an artist can like find inspiration in something and then but then the machine views that as this whole other thing right well in this one you have incubus who are not thinking about the new metal wave as they're crafting it. You know, they're not crafting this album thinking about like, where is it going to fit in the new metal wave? And yet that's how the critics received it, right? You know, because a critic is going to write about um, how the music is placed in the context of its time and in its space. Um, But that's not necessarily how the artists are crafting it. Like, they were just, like you said, some dudes out in California, like, making rock music, yeah. right? They, they weren't thinking about, like, oh, we have to be uh, different from the new metal wave. Or they weren't thinking about, oh, we should use this sound because it's popular, but yeah. we can go into our own direction with it, right? Like, yeah. they were just making music. Yeah. And, you know, I think sometimes critics need a reminder that, like, people just sometimes make music uh it's hard to get past that though. sometimes it's hard to get past it like sometimes i like, sometimes you see you see an app, like it's something i something i recently mentioned on DITD about uh uh one album a couple weeks ago and um it, i had to, i couldn't help but when i was listening to it and it's not a, a fault with the album at all um it was big zoo's navigate um no disrespect to the album at all but it just kind of brought me to the point of like having to force myself to think about why are people doing albums in this fashion where in this particular case I'm talking about is like these UK albums that do a little bit of grime, a little bit of rap, a little bit of Afrobeat, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And it's not like a whole thing. It's like a smorgasbord of something. And we're just going to hope you like at least one of them, depending on your main interest. So you know, I I know what you mean, Brandon, but sometimes it's just so hard well, not to review. Oh, well, there's that's interesting though, Charlie. Of like that yeah. that being not. I mean, I'm not necessarily big on those types of albums either. And just to bring it back to Incubus, kind of what's kind of crazy about what they did 
And what Brodsky highlights is that rather than doing that, they're obviously a band with multiple influences. They found the way to combine the influences into their own thing to where it leaned a bit in each direction, but still kept the through line. And that's really the challenge as a musician that we all seem to respect and just like to listen to more, which is if you can find how they all fit together, really, rather than a little bit of each of them, then you're like, oh, actually, there's something about this that is actually this whole new thing because you're in between all of these different things in your own space and there's also even like the retrospective of now looking at the album within the context of incubus's complete work right like when you're in the moment you're looking at the album in the context of their older work right there's always the question of oh is this better than the last one how did it expand on the last one are they using new techniques or are they expanding on techniques that they've already used but when now when you have the complete body of work the complete discography you can now look at it like within the context of the whole picture rather than look at it in the context of like what is it now like what is it right now mickey can i make a quicker mention on uh, a quicker example of uh just the point your point you made previously was just so funny because yeah. I was just, I wanted to read this uh this little paragraph on the three four four out of ten review from NME uh, about Morning View. Trouble is Morning View's insurmountable flaw is that Incubus sell themselves as an intelligent and sensitive rock band without actually <laughs> appearing especially intelligent or sensitive. <laughs> They're hippies, basically street fresh skatey oh, exterior, yeah. notwithstanding not acid head extremist hippies. God no. Rather, most of Morning View is what corn fans would listen to on their gap year in India. Sappy, <laughs> play nicely now, drip metal that continually recalls the triteness of Blind Melon. Right. Right. Oh, <laughs> no, nah, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, but that's what that is like exactly the thing that Brodsky exactly is going about. against. Yeah. I mean, but yep. yeah, they're like, I don't, mm-hmm. they think they're, tr- well, it's like taking this kind of ideology that they're like, oh, they're trying to be in this thing, but they're not in this thing. And Incubus would be like, we're not trying to be in that thing that you yes. think we're trying to be in yes. at all. Yes. Exactly. So and they and would there's... be like, yeah, like we, they, if they read that, they'd be like, yeah, we know. And, and there's even, I mean, there's even a, a, you know, certainly not all critics, but there definitely is yeah. a critical perspective that's viewing it, you know, that would view it through the lens of what is popular. Yeah. And it not fitting with that thing while they try to assign it to right. that thing. Right. Would definitely give you, you know, like if you're a music critic and you're out there and you're reviewing like the Corns and the Metallicas and the and, you're, and, and that's expect, like your thing. If you're into that. You're going to get handed this assignment. You're going to be like, what is this fake yeah, wannabe? Exactly. And they're like, we don't want to be any of that. And yeah, so. But yeah. Yeah. So I want to close on this about uh, the piece, though, to kind of just bring it to a little right. bit of a personal because Incubus is one of the first like, you know, quote unquote rock concerts I ever went to at one of the first festivals I went to in Baltimore. Uh, the Virgin Festival, which is at Pimlico Racecourse, one of the three legs of the the, um, the horse races for the Triple Crown. Um, and I, I was thinking um, about this piece and that experience and like what really drew me into them to make me kind of a lifelong fan of theirs. And I had heard their music peripherally before that point. And then I went to that concert and really dove in. Um, and then it made me think weirdly about uh, what just happened at Astro uh, Astro World, Astro Fest in yep. Houston, uh, which is that kind of like, um, which Incubus definitely does. Uh, obviously, people put this up with New Metal is like tapping into the rage on some level, and 
you know, if there is, there's, I think there's something to be said about a healthful way to do that because that is a human emotion that is universal. That how do you direct it? That is, that, you know, is actually has a potential for healing if, if used responsibly by the artist. And what I, I, and this is kind of a general feeling, but what I remember most vividly about that concert and how Incubus was presenting something that could be described as some type of rage music at times um, was that it felt really communal and not in a way of fuck each other up (laughs) to be kind of straightforward with it, that that, never felt like an element of that show and never felt like an element of how Brandon Boyd and his band were presenting themselves to the audience. Um, And I think that there is a value inherently into like tapping into that feeling sonically and humanly, that there's something that's freeing about that, that people love, but it's really, really important. And what just happened was a clear example of understanding where the line of of healthful doing of that is and responsible ways of doing that and entirely irresponsible and neglectful ways of doing that and what the result of each can be. One can be a fulfilling communal experience at a music festival and the other can be very detrimental. So yeah, I just wanted to close on that. No, that's perfect. That's perfect timing uh, right on an hour. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we shall finish there. I uh, hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, writers, uh, I'm going to see if I can do this uh, properly like Brandon does it. Uh, <laughs> writers, if you have a piece... No, I'm joking. If you have Is a that piece, you trying to uh, do my voice? <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. I, I moonlight as an impressionist. I'm not going to lie to you. I can't keep trying in life. Uh, writers, if you have a piece uh, that you feel uh, is worthy... Uh, of putting on the show, uh, it, you know, whether it be a retrospective or a profile or not, as we've never heard of, regardless of what it is, if you feel like it's some good stuff and you, you want to get your work out there, this is a perfect place to do so. We're always uh, on the lookout for, uh, you know, just non Rolling Stone content. <laughs> um, <laughs> so if you guys got any, if you guys know any writers or you are a writer uh, and you're a budding journalist uh, in 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 a, in that fashion please get in touch with us via the socials in the full show notes. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, we shall finish there. It's been such a source from Brandon, Mickey, and myself. We hope you all have a good, uh, I don't know, two weeks since we do it bi-weekly. <laughs> we shall always try to do the same, but until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen. Peace, Thank peace. You. Thanks for listening. This episode of In Search of Source featured Brandon Hill and Mick Herback of the Central Source Creative Collective and me, Charlie Ted, of the Fifth End Podcast Network. The episode was edited by me, music of his show, sponsored up by Basti, thanks to Jailbreakers for ability to use. This has been In Search of Source and Fifth End Podcast Era Production, thanks to Basti, Jailbreakers, Central Source, the Fifth Element, and content coming in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening, we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source. <laughs>